Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Well, it looks like at least Jim and I have made it alive to almost the end of 2016, the year of the Reaper. How you doing, Jim? Pretty good. I don't know how much this name means to you, but Lavelle Edwards was a coaching giant. And I'm old enough to remember when BYU was a football non-entity. And starting in the mid-'70s and until he finally retired a little over a decade ago, well, I guess now, yeah, you know, you know, a little bit. I guess now more like 15 or so years ago. But he took a program that was literally a nowhere program, like a flyover program that no one – I mean, you could ask people who were reasonably serious college football fans to name, you know, hey, name a college football program in Utah, and they would probably call them Utah and Utah State. Utah State was a more prominent program in the 60s and 70s or early 70s um, than BYU was. They were the number three program in the state of Utah at the time that he took the job, to, to put that in perspective. And Utah State actually was probably, due to having uh, some pretty well-known pros, Merlin Olson being you know, the most well-known of them, come out of that program. They were probably the, the program people were most familiar with at the time. Utah wasn't Utah was a good program, but wasn't terribly well-known. Cactus Jack Curtis and the the shovel pass uh, was originated there. Uh, Lee Grosscup, who you may or may know, know, as a broadcaster, also played Utah back in those days. So Utah had, you know, a couple of things that sort of claims to fame, but really you had no claims to fame, at least in football at the time. And Lavelle Edwards arrived there and saw the triple option initially and was prevailed upon by a young assistant named Duck Scoville to try a more pass-friendly, quarterback-friendly offense to try to draw talented quarterbacks and receivers who were Mormons, uh, for the most part. Not all of them, but many of them. Uh, Jim McMahon famously was not Mormon, and there's still stories about some of the things he apparently got away with uh, that were violations of the honor code, but the uh, getting back to Lavelle Edwards, he put that program, I mean, created that program almost to the same extent that Frank Beamer did at uh, Virginia Tech in that terms of putting it on the map. Eddie, I mean, almost to the point of Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson is probably maybe the greatest single program builder in the history of college football. He literally built that program. Uh, he used to, you know, put the lines out on the field for practice. He watched uniforms, but he built that program for really nothing. Joe Paterno took over a program that Rip Engel left in his, in his capable hands, but it wasn't a powerhouse, but Penn State football was decent. So I would put him even above Paterno in terms of 
having the most ground to make up. Uh, Bowden, I guess, might be in that conversation. It's hard to conceive of this if you're a younger person, but Florida State was not a very good football program in the 60s and most of the 70s. And, of course, Bobby Bowden changed that forever. But in terms of football from Mount Rushmore, particularly on the western half, on the half of the United States, the western half of the United States, Mount Rushmore, he has to be up there with people like Lynn Pappy Waldorf, who built the Cal program into a powerhouse back in the day. He's got to be up there with John. Um, uh, Come on, Bill, your brain. John McKay, right? <laughs> John McKay, who was basically the Bear Bryant of the West Coast in the 60s and 70s. Um, who am I forgetting? Uh, let see. Who else would be up there? I mean, there's amongst West Coast coaches, uh, or, not, or at least Western half of the United States coaches. Um, I guess if you count West Texas, maybe? I don't know. I mean, it's. Uh, who's cut kind of Vermeil was great, but for a very short amount of time at UCLA. Uh, I guess Coach McBride at Utah, I think he won about 200 games at Utah. He built Utah into uh, a minor powerhouse. I mean, you know, not quite, not never quite achieving the national recognition of BYU. But in this year that has, you know, cut a huge swath through our culture and uh, landscape of well-known individuals, Lavelle Edwards may sort of get lost in the, in the sauce to a certain extent, but I, I think he shouldn't be. He was a tremendous coach and an amazing man who all of his former players rave about you know, not just the football part. I mean, it's it's one thing when, you know, you go to a program and, you know, a, a person makes you a better football player and, you know, helps you to you know, learn about certain things. But he was a person who really believed his first job was to make you a better person, make you a better man. And he did that unfailingly with his, his student athletes. So uh, I'm very, very certain that that man has made his way to his, great reward. Uh, he was an amazing person and, like I said, a great, great coach. So uh, we've, you know, we've said goodbye to Lavelle Edwards. We're about to say goodbye to 2016. So as you're looking back at this year, Jim, what things stand out to you? Huh. Things stand out. Well, I think in terms of the year that was 2016 and football in general, I think a greater awareness of player safety has Mm. probably been one thing that stuck out a big time in terms of, uh, you know, ejections for uh, late hits, uh, targeting uh, players, sitting out games, you know, bowl games, for example, due to their health or Charles Walker, you know, basically, you know, declaring early and not continuing on based on his health. So just like a greater emphasis on sort of player safety and just player health in general um, and sort of 
almost instead of the collectivist, and it's funny to say that, but sort of the collectivist sort of mindset of most football teams being more individualistic in terms of how certain players approach teams. Like, yeah, we're on a team and everything else like that, but, you know, we're individuals who have wants and needs and stuff like that. Call them millennials or whatever you want to call them. But, you know, that sort of thing has been kind of increasing, uh, obviously. I think uh, the Big Ten's emergence is one of the – which, I mean, you, you you could see it coming. You know, Jim Harbaugh being there, Urban Meyer, of course, already there. Uh, you know, and the head coaching crops just continuing to get, you know, like we, we had sort of a – we had a moment where, like, you could see the, the things there to make that the best conference in, in college football. And then this year, bang, it was. So, like, there was just a lot of things from coaching to talent that really shifted things from the SEC, which is traditionally – it hasn't been that long since they've been dominant, really. But, you know, the whole dominant <laughs> SEC yeah, thing year. <laughs> has been a big thing. But to me, it's slowly – I mean, this is pretty much the year where, you're like, what's the most competitive conference in college football – you have to say the Big Ten. Like, there's no, you know, even though there are Purdue's, you know, the, the SEC has Vanderbilt's and stuff. And even though there are good coaches at Vanderbilt, it's just that talent-wise, it's a little, you know, questionable. But, but yeah, I think it's been a lot of that. I think it's, there's also been a sense of, I don't know how to put it, but, you know, it's, it's, I think it's been a good year of football. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed a lot of the games I saw. I feel like the readiness of it in general, I don't know. There, like I said, there's still this sort of divide where you kind of want things to go back to the way they, they were in football, at least with some people, but it'll never go back to that. You know, like it's nostalgia, you know, whenever a safety gets a big O hit on somebody and knocks them out, it's nostalgic sort of happiness from that. But we are also are learning more of the consequences of that. And as a result, it kind of, you know, I'm not saying that football players are becoming vegan or anything. I'm just saying that there is a little bit of that sort of, wow, you know, I, I eat chicken every day. Chicken's good, but wow, I didn't know chickens went through that to to get to my plate, you know, stuff like that. So I think there's a little bit of that kind of creeping slowly into it. And, and then it's just a wonder of, you know, what will be the long-term ramifications for that. Obviously not everybody's going to be vegan. People are still going to eat chicken and watch football, but there is definitely going to be more people thinking about, you know, how the stuff gets made, I guess, when it comes to college football. And I am proud, pleased, and blessed, in fact, to say we have a very, very special treat. Ladies and gentlemen, our Rocky Top representative, Mr. Steve Morton, has joined us as well. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, Bill. I had an hour, hour and a half, and I thought I'd hop on and talk to you and Jim about <laughs> football. <laughs> Well, thank you for that. And and also to, to tamp down people going a little bit crazy. Now, Derek Barnett is a fine, fine football player, and he's going to have a very nice NFL career. 
But I do hope people are not attempting to put him in the same (laughs) several breaths as Reggie White. You'd have thought Reggie White was some, you know, was was some, you know, old guy that got put out the pasture, and and I try to, you know, I try to tell people. I mean, you know, thirty-two sacks in nineteen eighty to nineteen eighty-three SEC is not is not equivalent to thirty-two sacks now. And when they didn't count postseason, when there was no. You know, I mean, and playing an eleven-game season—if that, I mean—so we have to subtract one game per year, and then take away this very bowl game. In fact, that we just saw because they didn't count bowl games. And, and about fifteen to sixteen attempted passes per game. Yes, per game, right? <laughs> so about somewhere between eighteen, about being one hundred and eighty and two hundred attempts to sack someone you know, more were enjoyed by Mr. Barnett in his three-year run than Reggie. And Reggie was one of the early sort of – at some point I'm going to write an article about the sort of history of hardship declaration. But at one point, and you remember this, Steve, you used to literally have to submit, for lack of a way of putting it, proof that your family was in dire straits in order to be able to do the draft early. If you were, if you were not an actual senior, a for real senior, you know, an actual – Honest to God, senior in the old days, you would have to, you know, you know, mom's diabetes is acting up, dad lost his job, something. You had to have something to, to explain why you were in the draft early. And I can't remember. Let's go ahead, Jim. Or uh, Steve, was that you, Steve? Yeah, yeah. Reggie uh, yeah. played four. He played four years at UT, but I mean, he played during a time. He didn't even play. He didn't even get to play like his first half of his freshman year because, I mean, Johnny Majors just didn't do that. Yeah. Well, right. Freshman <laughs> eligibility wasn't even available until, except for, you know, war times a few other times, until 74, what, 72? Okay. So, fresh, mm. so still playing freshman was kind of not a thing. <laughs> you know, I mean, unless you had to be super special. Like when Herschel was starting as a freshman because, Herschel was Herschel. I mean, there was a few guys. Yeah, he didn't get to start. He didn't get to start his first few games in Georgia. Right, right. He didn't start, start. But I mean, they played him, you know, because he was Herschel Walker. Like even, even people who frowned on starting freshmen looked at Herschel Walker and said, "Well, he's not really a freshman." I mean, you know, he's. Oh, I, once again, I I know I, I hate to sound like the you know the old guy saying things were better in the old days. Not everything was. A lot of things were way worse. Trust me, but. There was the expectations for freshmen were so different in those days. If a guy saw the field at all as a freshman, it was mm-hmm. a sign that he was an amazing super stud. You know, like you weren't just mm-hmm. okay. If, if you're playing as a freshman at all in the SEC, they must think you are a trained killer. They must think you are death on wheels. Because, well, once again, you know, it, it just wasn't done hardly. I mean, you had to be, I mean, sophomores starting meant big stuff like, wow, starting a sophomore, either meant you've been ravaged by injuries or that kid was, you know, ridiculous. So it's not surprising that even the best players of all time, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about these guys, took a while to see the field, to see meaningful snaps. And the thing about Reggie that separates him from 
well, anybody that we wanted to bring up. I mean, guys like Doug Atkins, guys like Reggie, they could have played in any era and would have been dominant in any era. And Reggie had this, you know, whatever term to use, country strong, I mean, just stupid, ridiculous strength where he would just toss 280, 290-pound guys just hither and thither and yon like they were, you know, sash weights. I mean, just throw them around like half-empty garbage cans. And, and he would – go ahead. Yeah, he'd just jerk an offensive lineman up out of the ground. And yes. It, it was something <laughs> to see. <laughs> it was it was something to see. I remember when, you know, John Henderson came along, and, I mean, once again, I mean, it was a little – you know, I mean, he wasn't the dynamic athlete that Reggie was, but he was a huge guy who was incredibly difficult to deal with. And you heard a little bit of murmuring about – could he be the next? And then, you know, people saw him say, well, he's good. But, you know, like you didn't hear people actually try, you know, <laughs> you know, like, okay, he's good. But now with Barnett, he's a different kind of athlete altogether. He's, mm-hmm. you know, stocky and, and obviously much shorter and, and frankly, not as fast. He's fast, but he's not, I mean, Reggie was, I don't, I can't remember what Reggie's actual times were, but he was sub five seconds. I remember that much at, Whatever two ninety eight, I think, is what he weighed in officially when they brought him in. Uh, uh, Reggie, and, was, I mean, Reggie was an incredible player. I mean, just everything, everything you'd want in a defensive end. Yeah, he was everything. That's what he was. He was everything. And you know, his USFL uh, stats don't count or whatever. But oh, oh my God! <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, the USFL was yeah, really high quality thing. football. For those who he's didn't get a chance to played, see it. I, he's a guy who played two years in the USFL, I think, and he's yep. still just one sack off the NFL record. Yep. By Bruce Smith. <laughs> yep. Who's another, yep. Who's another Bruce, good player in his own right. Okay, yeah, Bruce, I, I got to see Bruce Smith up close. On, that's the first time I saw Bruce Smith. I was 12 years old, and I was at Lake Taylor Junior High. And Lake Taylor Senior High, you know, which was literally right over there, you know, because my junior high school was like on a little hill, and then you walk down the hill up there's the high school. And our high school team was playing Booker T. Washington, which is where Bruce Smith went to school. And I'd heard about Bruce Smith. I mean, you could not hear about Bruce Smith. I had two cousins that played with Lawrence Taylor over at Lafayette High over here in, in – um, Williamsburg, and then, you know, right over here, back in closer to downtown Napa, we've got Booker T. Washington, uh, which had originally been the black high school, which hence the name Booker T. Washington. So at one point, every black kid, basically, well, pretty much every black kid, ended up going to Booker T. And so Booker T. was dangerous for a long time, but the white teams didn't worry about it because they ended up playing. And then when integration hit, it hit rather slowly, so it took a while for them to start dispersing the black talent out of Booker T. So Booker T was, even when, even after integration first hit, Booker T was still just destroying people. When you, you, you know, those poor kids from like Norfolk Catholic or Granby were getting just walked. But, um, but yeah, so I went, I'm watching, I watched him play football and basketball. Uh, he and his line mate, who was a, I don't know what became of, of Plug Melton, but he was a, an impressive, he was a kind of a roly poly fat kid who was explosive as all get out. He was, Plug Melton at 310 or whatever he was, in, even in high school, was a center on the basketball team at 6'3", 
four, maybe 310 pounds, but he could jump. He was a fat thing, but he could move, man. And so I'm watching Bruce, who is this ridiculous athlete at the time, and he was kind of a fat kid too. So these two fat kids that nobody's doing anything with who were just thrown, once again, I mean, those guys in high school were just unstoppable. And uh, that song played basketball, and Bruce played power forward, and, and Plug Melton played center, and they were basically football players playing basketball, but they were explosive, big, powerful athletes. I love Barnett. He's a terrific player, and I can tell that he's going to do well. I mean, he's got stuff that's going to allow him to be a really good, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, deep pass rusher. He's going to be a good pass rusher. He's not bad against the run. But, yeah, there's no comparison. There's no comparing people to, like I said, I mean, Von Miller, I'm not quite going to compare him to Lawrence Taylor, but he's the closest I've seen since. I'll, I'll give him that. You know, like Kobe's not Mike, but he's as close as anybody's managed to come. So you've got these people who are, you know, hey, you're, you're 75% there, and that's a pretty good compliment. But uh, I'll ask you, Steve, what are your impressions, particularly obviously with Tennessee having a, Really interesting year. Uh, what are your impressions sort of overall of the year that was in, in college football in 2016? Well, I mean, considering that you know, the SEC was the, it was basically Alabama and the you know little bitty little fusions. What I mean, every team in the SEC has Alabama totaling what four losses around at least. Yep. So uh, the Big Ten was probably was the best conference at the top. Uh, I still don't think anybody's as good as Alabama, so I think Alabama's going to win the national championship. But uh, so you're still here, probably SEC people gloating about you know Alabama being good, which I don't understand at all. And the Tennessee fan, I'm kind of sick of Alabama being good. <laughs> uh, Ohio State's got a lot of talent, but they're young. So I mean. Uh, so they could lose a lot of players again when you look at all the redshirt sophomores if they decide to walk. Uh, you know, uh, there was really no wonderful quarterback this year. There was really no wonderful offensive player this year except Dalvin Cook, who's uh, dominating Michigan right now. So. Yeah, not really a surprise. Not really a surprise. <laughs> so, uh, uh, the defense is, I think there's a really good defensive year. I think it's going to be a really good defensive draft. There's a, all the levels of the defense, uh, I think they're, they're, you can find good players. Uh, I don't know that I would say 2011 like I've seen, because I don't know that I've seen a watch or a Von Miller. Uh, <laughs> That's a lot to ask for there. <laughs> so I don't know if, you, if I've seen a watch or a Von Miller or Darius or a Casey or Justin Houston. Well, I've seen the, I've seen some players I think would be better than Marcel Darius. I haven't seen yeah the other guy. <laughs> I mean yeah, uh, Solomon Thomas is potentially special, but if he's JJ Watt, I'd say no. And of course, he may not even declare. A lot of Stanford guys really value getting their degrees because it's a dude it's a degree from Stanford. When you choose to go to Stanford, you're not just a football player. You you want to be a Stanford grad. So, uh, you know, Solomon Thomas, uh, I like John Allen a lot. I think a lot of people went crazy about him earlier in the year, uh, started calling him Sue. I don't think he's that good. 
things into book sub, you know, above and below the hack hack line, sort of like the Mendoza line in baseball. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that might have been, been one of the worst series of downs I think I've ever seen. Yeah, well, quarterback guru Jim Harbaugh needs to <laughs> – Either you know, kick his guru guruing into a, uh, another gear, or get better quarterback prospects. One one or the other, because uh, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's funny because I mean, I used to really like Corn. I don't know what the heck became of him. He just went from being an interesting young prospect to just terrible um, in a shockingly quick amount of time, and then 
you know, Harbaugh was not able to completely rehabilitate him because he lost the battle to this guy, uh, which tells me pretty much everything I need to know. And um, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, they just threw the ball. They just threw it a yard short on third and goal from the three. Yes, <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> the, it was a pass that traveled approximately eleven and a half yards. You know, when you count both how it went, you know, diagonally and and forward. And he, he was struggling to get it there. I agree. It was not not impressive. Not what you look for. Oh. So, yeah, so, I mean, and Solomon Thomas uh, really just, he's a very good player. I mean, he, he no, like I just said, he may not come out. Uh, I said, I don't, does he get pushed down by teams as they look at him and try to wonder where did, where does he fit? Right, and he could afford to get bigger, and I think he could get bigger without really losing anything. He's not a guy who seems to be, quote-unquote, one of my least favorite scouting phrases, maxed out. Um, I'm I, I, not a big fan of that term, but he doesn't show any signs of being that. You know, he seems like he could put on 15, 20 pounds if that's what you wanted him to do, and he'd still be a very quick powerful, explosive athlete. I don't think he'd be, you know, bogged down by the extra weight. But he's a really fun prospect to watch. And there's been sort of a debate between Jonathan Allen and he, and I think they're different enough as as players that you can, you know, once again, you can always like both. That's, that's still an option, people. But I could see one of them becoming a true three technique, and, you know, and pretty much full-time, and guy you might move around in certain special packages when you put in your Cheetah, Jaguar, race car, NASCAR, whatever the heck you want to call the package, you could move him, you know, put him even over the nose at times. I believe Solomon Thomas, by this time next year, whether he's in the NFL or not, will probably be about 292 pounds and still will be a guy who's capable of doing the things you saw him do today. Well, he, he, he put out a pretty good uh, uh, imitation of John Randall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, and uh, John Randall wasn't the biggest guy in the world either. So. 292 or 291, I guess, to be exact. But, yeah, exactly. He was undersized and went to a small school, which is why he was undrafted. Uh, but. I mean, his college tape, and I only saw two games worth, but it was comical. I mean, once again, you can't expect these guys, you know, Division II uh, interior linemen to have any answers for a guy like John Randall, but I mean, he wasn't even 298. He was 272 or something at the time. He was somewhere in the 270s in his college days. But he was overpowering people and or, you know, blowing past them or both. He, you know, he could do whatever he wanted. I mean, once again, I mean, there's you shouldn't ever have to. When you're a deep Division two, you know, you're an Abilene Christian, you're going to be a insurance salesman or whatever. You shouldn't have to face John Randall. That's not fair to you. So, I mean, so yeah, his tape was comical in college. I mean, I saw two games, and each time, 
What in one of the games, I, I'm barely exaggerating, but he probably had about 11 tackles for loss. It might have, I may not even be exaggerating. Like, it seemed like on about a third of their plays, John Randall was laying on top of the ball carrier in the back, in the backfield, or the quarterback, or both. Yeah, I mean, he just, he was, you put him on artificial turf against some slow offensive guard. I mean, it just wasn't even fair. <laughs> and he was on that guard and threw him before the guy even had a chance to react. So that's why I said Solomon Thomas. That's kind of what Solomon Thomas was doing today. He was, he was just on yep. the guards before they had a chance to react. Yep. So, so. like there, there were plays where they assumed that by moving the pocket away from him, they're going to get the quarterback or whatever is away from him enough so they could get the playoff, like even that, you know, fateful last play. They, they, it's like they just couldn't believe that that guy could get there from there. <laughs> but he can get there from there. No matter where it is you think you're going, he can get there from there. So you have to account for those guys differently than you would think you'd have to account for, you know, a, a defensive lineman who's often lining up on the interior because he's kind of what he does best. He's an interior defensive lineman who can at times, you know, line up. I mean, it's funny because some people treating him as a defensive end. And, of course, he's not, he can play defensive end. But, right, exactly. He's, he's not. not. A I mean, it, why is it no, so hard? Why, why, why is it so hard for people to understand that you have edge rushers, at least guys that I see as, you know, four, three defensive ends or three, four outside linebackers, rush the passer, and then you have the rarest of rare guys that are five techs who play inside, who also rush, you know, the J.J. Watts, the, you know, the Reggie Whites, those types of guys, which are the rarest things to find on the planet. Yes. You know, it's hard to find yes. a six foot five, 300 pound animal, you know, that can take on, you know, double teams and still consistently get a good pass rush and can pretty much line up everywhere on the line and produce. It's hard to find those guys. So I mean, I didn't even, the why. Sort of, even the ones who just sort of take up space and kind of do their jobs, the Aaron Smith, the Kimo Von Allhoffens, the, yeah. the other sort of boring Brett Kiesels, those guys are dull right. as dirt, but those guys are hard to find. The ones who just do enough. Hard to, to do find. that. Hard to find. So, like, you get a guy like Solomon Thomas who's basically doing that role, and we have a whole bunch of, well, I don't know what he is. I don't know what he does. I don't know. Da, da, da. Is he a defensive end? Is he this? He's listed a defensive end. It's a 3 4 defense, guys. You know what he's playing. <laughs> I mean, you know the position he's playing. It's not that hard to, to figure it out. Like, I just. And then there's the whole thing, well, edge means that you're the edge. I'm like, listen, man, I, I'm not saying I've done this forever. I'm just saying that he is an interior pass rusher. That's what he is. That's what yeah. he excels at. That's what he's great at. I don't care if you put him in a 3-4 or 4-3, he's going to be really great at that. So that's what he is. He's an interior pass rusher. You know, you put him up against guards, you put him up against tackles, you can occasionally put him on the edge and have him do his thing. But you know that that he lives why inside. Why, I know why. Why? 
I don't know why he would do that, but apparently <laughs> draft Twitter wants to do that, I guess, because it, for some reason it makes sense in the logic to take a guy that dominates inside and put him on the edge. It's just like Jonathan Allen. I've heard people say, oh, Jonathan Allen is an edge. No, he's not. He's not an no. edge. Why? That, that Why do Superman people do play, That Superman play wasn't an edge play. That was inside against that very weak guard for Texas. Well, I mean, so like, it happens even in the NFL because the, the last time the Titans let Terrell Casey three-tack every down, he had, like, um, he had 11 sacks that year. Exactly. <laughs> like, we know what he is. Like, there shouldn't be confusion about, oh, well, does he fit our system or not? You know, I don't know. I mean, we play this type of system. We need a certain type of guy to play it. I'm like... Just stick him over a guard and let him beat that guard Exactly. <laughs> not that hard. It, should, it shouldn't be. <laughs> And just, and just let it whip the hell out of that guard. And and what and the really, you know, fortunate thing for you on defense is a guy who's whipping the hell out of the guard, there is no quarterback that can ignore that. Nope. That quarterback no. doesn't exist. You can have they quarterbacks don't. that can ignore Andrew. I would, I would like to remind people that that's what it was that when, you know, we were talking about Tom Brady's kryptonite, Tom Brady's kryptonite wasn't Michael Strahan, you know, bending the edge, and which he was great at, and coming around here and, you know, chasing down Tom Brady from behind. Not, not that he didn't do that on a couple of occasions, but Tom Brady's kryptonite was all those guys blowing up through the B-gap, coming right into his lap. No, there, there's exactly. no quarterback that, li- that, li- that, that deals with that way. No, that quarterback has not and probably never will be born. That is that is the thing that makes every quarterback bad. There are guys no, who can survive. Like pressure right in their face. <laughs> nope, nope. There's not a single guy that embraced Brett Favre. Crazy as he was, didn't embrace that. Nobody did to that. No, that's why you know, he invented the Stafford... crab, the crab walk. You know, that's why he invented. It. <laughs> I mean, no. No, no quarterback likes to deal with some defensive tackle running, running free. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, I could make an interesting case when we've got Demarcus Walker, who I think is also 273 pounds, if memory serves me correctly. Yeah. And you've got well, so yeah, I mean, you, right, right, right. So you've got Solomon Thomas. You've got Demarcus Walker, and then you know a slightly different, slightly different case is, is Allen, who's a. I don't know exactly what Allen weighs, but I I think by the time he gets to the combine, he'll be close to two ninety or in the well into the upper two eighties. I'm guessing. And yeah, he, well, he, he ate. He ate all the Chick Fil A, man. That's the that's the college football word. So he's got to he's going to get up there. <laughs> if I think so, yeah, I mean, you like so, to play. Who doesn't? Right, exactly. So you've got these guys, every single one of whom is good at something, and some of them are good at similar something. And I, mean, I guess conceivably somebody could try to make them into something different from what they are, but it doesn't seem like it. But, you know, I don't see the percentage in it, but you could. You could do that. You could say, yeah, this guy could play Leo or whatever, you know, <laughs> or whatever. 
you know, I've seen people make stranger decisions with players, but I have a feeling that the NFL and tried to make an edge rusher out of Kevin Dunn. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I think we just outthink ourselves, man. That's all I can say. When we, yeah. when we get when we get so complex into like, well, you know, he's doing a triangle concept here. Is he getting the quarterback? Is he getting the running back? Like to to me, that's is he flowing in the right direction? You know, to get to make a play. Uh, at times, all these guys do that really well. All these guys, I mean, just in terms of like a three-tech class, this is one of the better three-tech classes I've ever, I mean. Oh, yes. When, yes, it is, when, yes. When you have like a, <laughs> I mean, even though I'm not the biggest fan of Mont Adams, he's like playing fourth-string, fifth-string guys, you know, at the three-tech spot. So that just tells you, you know, how many just, pure interior pass rushers are in this class. So, like, there's just lots of things. I just think this whole, oh, well, he's a DZ playing on the edge. Uh, I don't even know what that means. I, I do know what it means to me. I just think there's – I, I kind of get what you mean by not liking the, the term edge, Bill, at this point, because there's so many different interpretations of that term, you know, at yeah. this point. It's like saying spread offense. Well, I mean – Everybody, with maybe three or four exceptions, is really I mean, there's a few triple option teams. There's Wisconsin. I mean, even Alabama is, you know, over fifty percent shotgun spread. I mean, if that's what you if that's what you think spread means. Um, so terms like edge and terms like spread, they're very lazy. That's my issue, and they can mean so many different. And somehow we managed to survive. We managed to survive for right now. Oh, go ahead, Bill. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. We managed to somehow have football for seven decades by actually calling people by what position they played, and it seemed to work fine, as opposed to making up a non-football position. You know, I mean, like no coach says, "Hey, kid, go line up at edge." Okay, fine. I'm sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised at all by that. I mean, I, mean, I, I hate to I hate to play into the sort of obvious Florida versus Michigan narrative, but they got a little more quickness, I think, than the boys at Michigan are used to. I mean, they're. I mean, they're having a lot of trouble getting these guys blocked. Well, the one thing the one thing they should do. If they do some influence blocks, because that's the thing about Florida defenders I've seen is they are very quick, very twitchy. Not the brightest guys in the world in terms of – just in terms of like – it's like one of the issues I have with Caleb Brantley in that he's a three-tech, but he's a three-tech without a brain at times where it bites you in the butt. You just get upfield, get upfield, get upfield, and then there's nothing there. So you're just – you're having to backtrack and you're done really you're out of the play you know if you're in the backfield and the play's already gone you're done you know Caleb Brantley ain't chasing that running back from behind you know what I'm saying so uh, start receiving from so, behind well, 
Francois back in? Because he took a kill shot the last time. Yeah, well, Francois always gets back up. I mean, if you know nothing (laughs) else, he's taken several kill shots this season. Many, many, many many kill shots. shots. That's Florida State line with all those great players and first round tackles. Yeah, they had him on the sidelines on the last series. He was kind of of turning his shoulder a little bit. Yes, yes. He was his, his. his mid-back, his shoulder, his spleen, probably his kidneys. I mean, there was some – that was one of those shots where your internal organs get jostled. I don't know if you've ever been hit that hard before. Uh, I, hope, I hope you haven't. But if you ever take one of those hits, you literally feel your organs, like, rattling around. It's like, oh, that's not a good feeling. You know, and it takes you a moment to sort of recover from that. Well, okay, I'm not bleeding internally, apparently. Uh, I think I can play. But, yes, he's, you cannot question young Mr. DeAndre Francois' stuff. Is, he has taken – he's been like a human pinata. He takes two or three brutal, oh, my God, hits in every game this season that I've seen. He's taken some just – center cut, well, swing from the heels. Is Taco the second coming of Reggie White or is this Florida State right tackle that bad? It's State, man. It's State. I mean, we're still talking about Roderick Johnson as a as a top three tackle in the class, man. I mean, that's still – or a top two tackle even. Like, we haven't even gotten past that point. So, I don't know who the whole line has this, issues. I don't know who yep. the 76 is, but he, he's doing a helmet impression of Jeremiah Putasi. <laughs> the thing that the, this this is the matchup. It it is can can Michigan's front seven do enough of beating they them in the when they the can quarterback. Right. Basically, yes. Can they get to enough third and more than threes? You know, third and whatever, so that it forces them to not just be able to throw a quick screen or hand the ball off to Dalvin Cook on third down. It was, it's, it was, it was, they forced a pass situation. They have good enough corners that can hold up long enough that that pass rush will get there because it doesn't take long, as you've seen, for the pass rush to get there. So the ball has to come out extremely quickly for there to be a chance because they, they can get passes down the field if, you know, they can, I mean, there's things that can happen down the field if – you can keep your quarterback alive long enough to do that, which has been the issue for them. I mean, they, these tackles are awful. <laughs> I mean, yes. I mean, they're yes. But it's not just the tackles, it's the inside, man, the interior. Yes. I mean, you got pressure up the middle, you got pressure on – it's just ridiculous, man. I mean, I thought yes. these were supposed to be five-star recruits, man, or four-star recruits. You know? <laughs> yep. Saying. Yep. Well, yeah, first thing, yeah, I think just loaded. With, I think tackle is. Uh, I think offensive line is one of the places where probably the 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 four or five star thing is probably overloaded because you, you're going to favor the kids that actually you know grew a lot and were bigger for their size in high school because they're playing with smaller players. I mean, Drew yep. Richmond was the second was the second or third highest rated tackle in the country. When he was a, when he was coming out of his senior year, I mean, <laughs> I mean yep. 
Well, yeah, I mean, but it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, I just don't get the whole, like, a lot of times the top tackles are guys that, as as you said, you know, they're guys that are like six foot eight, which are supposedly, but, you know, they're like really big, you know, 300 plus pound guys at 18 years old, which is great and everything else like that. But not every great tackle is six foot eight, 350 pounds, like some of them are six foot five and 300, you know, like some are six foot six. So, like, there's a lot of different types of tackles. I just don't understand why there's an emphasis on bigness, which makes you have higher upside at tackle versus the other sort of. Exactly. When you're 17 and you still have like years of development Mm -hmm. left to go in terms of weight room and everything else, you know. And the other thing is this camp culture, seven on seven culture, it's cool and everything, but it, it's not a game. It's not a game, exactly. So they run some one on one with no pads, uh-huh. right? But they run for the offensive linemen. They get to run some one on ones with no pads, you know. And they uh-huh. oh look how so and so dealt with such and such in a no pads. Nobody's trying to get hurt because it's summertime. It's not a football game situation anyway. So you know you you get these guys. Right, who Greg Little or whoever it is, you know, who, hey, look how well he moves, look how bendy he is. And he's from this big powerhouse program we've all heard of. Well, that's it. You're a big kid. You can move well. You're from this big powerhouse program we've all heard of. Hey, you had four stars. Oh, you look good at camp. Here's your fifth star. So, I mean, it's a problematic system. I've been critical of this whole thing, you know, many times. But it falls apart completely when it comes to certain positions. Now, running back, you know, you can point to some success stories. But look at the quarterbacks. I think there's only one five-star starting in the NFL. Uh, we're here there's to confirm that. Well, Stafford was a five-star. Yeah, if memory serves correctly, Cam was a four yeah, he wasn't uh, – but he was ridiculous. I mean, I don't even know why he was before. I mean, if you saw his high school <laughs> testing, it was pretty I much know. identical to his – it was identical to his regular <laughs> testing. And high school testing was the same as it was coming out. Like, that's something yep. you look at and go, that's a five-star athlete. I don't care about quarterback, you know. Man, man, I – when the when the like the when the two thousand eight Gators seven eight Gators got off the bus, I mean Tim Tebow and Cam Newton, that's our quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be a long day, Vanderbilt. It's gonna be a long day. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I I exactly. They had some, and um, oh, who else was on that? They had another. Who was the other quarterback that um? They had another court. I think who else transferred out? But they had a ridiculous number of of big, strong, athletic quarterbacks. And somebody transferred out also. I mean, I mean, our quarterbacks are going what, Jim? Six five, two fifty. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah, he was he was our something a little, a little special. But they were both super. I mean, the thing is, even though Tim Tebow gets a lot, I mean, he was super. I mean, he he was easily one of the. At at when he was playing in the NFL, he was easily you know the one of the fifth most athletic quarterbacks. If not even that, it's not even top three. So just Cam was that much more athletic than he was, you know, just in terms of everything. 
But, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just ridiculous. I, you know, I don't know anymore. I just know when it comes to the camp system, what, what they're not admitting to me is that the reason why you're giving these guys five stars is because they're big, tall, and they look like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, but they don't play like Tom Brady or Peyton Manning. <laughs> you know, they just look like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And I think that's one of the biggest sort of, really, this is, this is actually happening. But, yeah, it does, man. But, I mean, Andrew Luck was a four-star. Andrew Luck was a four-star. Yep. were like the most unimpressive athletes at 17 or 18 looking athletes that you will ever see. Did DeMarcus Walker yes. strip that ball? <laughs> or they blew it dead? Well, they, they blew it with, they blew it, blew it dead. But, but here's the thing. Now, Peyton, because everybody knew who he was, was highly rated. He was a five-star. Tom Brady was a two-star, you know? So, and one who almost ended up at, like, San Jose State. I mean, you know, he'd only, he, only because he had this huge ego even then, and he was determined, I'm not going to go to San Jose State or, you know, Fresno or something like that. I'm going to a Big Ten school. So, he, you know, re- he and his father relentlessly kept after those poor people at Michigan until they agreed to sign him. And Florida State is running through Michigan again. Oh, no, Jordan Lewis, that's not a good look for you. It is not. But, yeah, Florida State does have, I mean, it, once again, I hate to play into the sort of obvious regional narratives, but they clearly have more team speed. They have speed. Uh, that, is, yes. that is something you can kind of see. <laughs> Should it's have been against Ohio State. You know, Curtis Samuel <laughs> is kind of running up and down the field, you know. <laughs> I'm just saying, all the people that are like, Jabril Peppers, why are everybody down in Jabril Peppers? I'm like, did you see him go up against Curtis Samuel? It didn't end too well. Did you see the tweet from 11 Warriors earlier? I think they may have actually won Twitter. <laughs> wow. Lawrence Dossie Jr. There's a feel old moment, Steve. I just saw Lawrence, Lawrence Dossie Jr. on the sideline. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. It seems like Lawrence Dossie was there just yesterday. God. His dad played with Peter Warwick and um, who else? They had a heck of a receiving core at that time. It was uh, Peter Warwick, Lawrence Dossie Sr., I guess I should say now. And who was the other? They had – it wasn't Snoop Menace. Snoop Menace was like three, four years after that bunch. Um Was it Tamaric Vanover? Who was the other? They had three receivers get drafted one year out of Florida State. Warwick went in the first. Dossie went in like the fourth or third or something. And was it one other guy. Was it, was it No, no. This was before Coles. I hope it was before Coles. God, was it? I hope it was before. This was more like Tamaric Vanover maybe. or It was a few years before Coles because Coles was, was with Snoop Menace. This was before Snoop Menace and um, and and Lavernius Coles. See, I wish Jeff Lloyd were here. I bet he would know. But they they had a heck of a receiving core in those days, back when you know guys like what was it uh, McManus and Peter Tom Willis and it was amazing the non entities. I mean, like Danny Cannell, I guess, was one of the better ones. But it's just shocking how few of those guys were really good that they had playing quarterback for them. I thought Jordan Lewis was supposed to be fast. 
was a uh, well, he's this? Michigan fast. He's not well, I mean, Florida fast. Four, I mean, four four six, four four five ish. You know, but I don't I mean, even know what the heck he was doing. He thought it was. <laughs> I guess I mean, he thought it was like an intermediate. Bird just beat him twenty yards. <laughs> that pass yeah, well, like a duck as, yeah, as as stated previously, they aren't quite used to this. This is a little something different. This isn't Indiana or Northwestern. This is a slightly different grade of athlete than they're used to. So Ohio State has guys like this, but that's about it. You know, they, the big they have a couple. Is, I mean, not all of them are. You know, they have like right one exactly. Or two. <laughs> it's yeah. not a whole team. It's not a whole team of Florida guys. No, you are correct. It's not a whole team. It's a little they different. They got one of them. Two of them. They got, a few, they got a few, but it's a little different when it's just, you know, three, Everybody. four deep of that. Right? It's three, four deep of that. Uh, but, yeah, getting back to some of my impressions of this year, you know, I, I was super high on Houston, and Houston at its best looked like one of the top four or five teams in the nation, and then Houston, you know, would turn around and then lose to, you know, UConn or somebody. So it was sort of a weird thing with them and maybe some of it had to do with the various and sundry turmoils of various sorts surrounding their coach. I don't know. I, I, that feels excuse-ish to me. I don't know if they're just one of those teams that could only play at their best against, you know, top competition or something. I don't know what it was. But that being said, there's some guys at that program now, you know. that's They've got some dudes. They have some straight dudes now. I mean, Houston isn't used to having dudes like they've got dudes now. This is exciting, and we'll see, obviously, what happens in the future. But, you know, Ed Oliver is special. Uh, He has a chance to be somebody we talk about for a long time. Yeah, he's got two more years of eligibility. So, you know, two more years. Me. A true, well, at least two, right? I mean, unlikely, I guess, he'd come back for his senior year. But, I mean, just he dominated a lot of guys who were supposed to be good, I guess is what I'm what I'm driving at. Yeah. They had zero answers for him. Uh, you Marcus. know, Oklahoma got wrecked by him. Yeah, he made a lot of guys miserable this year. Uh, let's see. Other things. Okay, the quarterback class. Oh, boy. You guys have got to bring that up. So, remember, this is supposed to be a super great quarterback class. Because last year, when people were bemoaning, you know, the quarterback class, they are saying, but, you know, next year will be better. Hashtag yep. evergreen tweet. Uh, and people were super excited about this class coming into this oh, yeah. year. And then some of the excitement. Talented. Yeah, there's talent there. But some of the excitement kind of went away, and now people are sort of declaring, well, none of these guys are going to be ready to be, you know, to play much initially, you know. Yeah, but, we're going to drop them in the first round, you know, because that's what we do. You know? <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> because this, this, reason. This, this Michigan line really wished Marcus Walker would catch the flu or something. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, the, the way they all say – Demarcus swim move Walker is, you know, that's the one thing he does pretty well. That's swim move. He does do that well. And he's another guy who's best, as you said, lining up against slow guards. I mean, 
he's going to do, if used correctly, you know, if used in a tuck-ish kind of manner, he could have a very long, successful NFL career. Because there are bad guards in the NFL, too, people. There are lots <laughs> of bad guards. Lots of That's the thing that we sometimes forget. You can find a weak link. You know, there's they exist at the next level, too. Now, usually there's not quite as many of them. But there are some. You know, he's a guy who's got some power and good technique, and I think he he may not be a dominant player at the next level, but he certainly should be a solid player at the next level. But, yeah, getting back to the, West, uh, about the quarterbacks, the, the senior quarterbacks are almost being completely ignored, I guess because of the fact that they're seniors. Who cares about seniors? So all the excitement yeah. about all the I excitement, mean, what excitement there is, yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say basically over some guy in Wisconsin who can't you can't manage to get fifty five percent of his passes. <laughs> oh, you talking about Josh Allen? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, and he's not even again, a, he's not even a junior. I mean, he's a redshirt sophomore. He's so, a redshirt yeah. sophomore. So yeah, but um, which I hope people don't do. You know, he doesn't declare because that would just. I mean, as much as people want to go oh, look at this crazy throw he made, you're completing fifty five percent of your passes in the Mountain West Conference. And I know people go, "What does that mean that the guys that complete sixty percent are better?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, efficiency wise, you know, like they're not." They're not causing, you know, they're not having this issue like he has. So, like, I don't think it's talent-wise. But, yeah, I mean, senior-wise, I mean, Nick Mullins at Southern Miss, I think, is, is, you know, fairly talented quarterback. I recently watched Alex Torgerson from Pennsylvania, who is actually good. Now, he's very aggressive in terms of his decision-making. He's one of those look-ma, no-hands type of quarterbacks at times where he's just like, you know, I'm just going to I'm just gonna wing it and just throw this down the field type of thing and not care about what's, you know, down there type of attitude. Yep. But he, and he can make, yeah. But he, but he has some, you know, he has to. He kind of reminds me of, like, Bruce Kratkowski, actually, in terms of just, you know, he's kind of a gritty, kind of white, you know, quarterback, West Coasty kind yeah. of guy that can, you know. Yes. Blue Crown Caller. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, I've watched him. Um, I've watched Shabnitsky, uh, who had a really good year and just, you know, was his Lehigh, the Lehigh Lafayette game, which is one of those, another great little underrated rivalries, but he just was, poof. He was dealing. He was straight dealing in that Lehigh Lafayette game. I mean, just flat out dealing. Just, I mean, he showed you a little bit of everything. He doesn't have a huge arm, but he can throw the ball deep. And that's the other thing. Some people mistake. There are lots of guys who have great arm strength who are not good at deep ball passes. And Joe Montana had an arm that was really nothing to write home about. He was a really good deep ball passer. Deep, deep ball passing is about things like anticipation, accuracy, projection, mathematic computation, all that good stuff. 
much more than just simple arm strength. I can name a bunch of guys with super strong arms who were terrible downfield passers. So I think it's really important to recognize what things actually go into being an effective downfield passer because not just how strong your arm is. I mean, Bubby Brister had a super strong arm, people, but you didn't want him to oh, fall yeah. Well, I think it just goes back to the whole, you know, when we say, oh, quarterbacks have upside, I, I don't, just because, again, just because you're tall and you have a strong arm doesn't mean that you have upside, considering that strong arm isn't necessarily what you need. It's good to have a strong arm, but having a strong arm doesn't make you really good in terms of anticipation. Doesn't make well, you really well what if I told you I was only a redshirt sophomore with only a handful of starts? Now are you interested? I I don't know what to tell you about Josh Allen. I mean, I don't even know where this even – I mean, I understand why it manifested itself, but, I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else to say at this point. He's a guy who – and I know I, I get into the whole statistically speaking whatever, but statistically speaking, he's a guy that shouldn't come out anyway. You he know, should not. And, not. and I think you won't. I, I'm, I, I'm feeling like you won't. I'll be shocked, in fact, if he does. But then when you go to the tape – Again, you have like three quarters worth of just, oh my gosh, what, what what type of play? And then all of a sudden you'll have like one thing here and there, and like, oh, there's the gifts right there, you know, that three, four plays. But that's it, you know, like that isn't how you don't win games in, in the NFL by being completely terrible and then having three to four plays that were just brilliant. That's just not how life works. In the NFL. And that's how Sorry. You, that is how you become a guy like Bobby Brister. I mean, that that is how you be that guy. Is you 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 have that ability or uh, Billy Joe is it Tobart or Tolliver? I can't remember which one of the Billy Joes I was thinking of. Who was that guy? Who would be terrible? And they make four plays that were amazing. Throws that maybe two or three other guys in the league might be able to make. And it would go right back to being horrible. I can't remember which one of the Billy Joes it was I'm thinking of, but either Billy Joe Hobart or Billy Joe Tollip was that guy. Amazing arm strength, you know, heart of a lion, brain, not quite what you wanted in an NFL quarterback, but but you Gary Hogerbun could throw it as hard as anybody you've ever seen. Yes, that is true. And he had a couple of good games. I mean, I remember, I think it might have been a Thanksgiving game. We led a furious comeback from about 17 down to win a game and looked like a world beater. And then the next game out, right after that, it might have been against Philadelphia. He got picked off like five times. I was like, oh, yeah, that's Gary Hogeboom. I was just starting to get into the draft stuff the year he came out. And he was on the first sort of non-Tower 5. Was it Western Michigan that Hogan Boom was from? And I, I remember the first time I saw Scout sort of get super excited about sort of like a mystery quarterback. Well, I mean, Phil Sims to a certain thing as well. I remember when Central he was coming Michigan. out of Moorhead. Yeah, Central Michigan. Thank you. Yeah, I knew it was one of the Mavs ones. 
Central Michigan, right? And sort of a similar thing with with uh, Phil Sims at Moorhead State, and then later Ken O'Brien from Cal Davis. But you um, you would hear you know rumors of these guys because you know this is back when I could you know we didn't have the internet in those days, so you you just had to hear from other people about these guys. Hey, there's this guy at Moorhead State, you know, throw the ball a country mile, tough as nails. But, yeah, so you didn't have to hear about it. You know, I heard about Hokeboom. You know, Central Michigan was not on national television in those days. <laughs> <laughs> but I heard of him. I heard about him. People were like, yeah, yeah, scouts are super excited. He's, you know, 6'4", he's 205 pounds. They get to throw the ball, you know. The old throw ball, throw ball without a car wash, without getting any wet kind of stuff. But here's the thing, Jim, and you've been critical of this for you know good reason. People assume just because a guy is raw that he is upside, and they'll even put the two together: raw upside, implying somehow that rawness itself is a promise of future return on investment. His sheer lack of polish means that he'll automatically get better someday, and Hard experience teaches you that that's not always the case. Well, it's just historically inaccurate. I mean, <laughs> sure, you will have a Brett Favre who is the only quarterback to have a kind of above-average college career and then go on to have a you know, Hall of Fame career, obviously. But, like, that's it. That's one guy in the last 50, 60 years. And not only that, he went, he, they didn't like him at first. He got traded to a, a coach of Mike Holmgren, who is, you know, one of the better, you know, coaches at the time. And then you have the sort of stuff that goes along with it. So, like – And then he has a staff that's just chock full of – He has future high-level quarterback whisperers on the same damn staff. At the same staff. So, like, you're talking about something where unless you have the same scenario, which I doubt that, I'm just yeah. being honest. So I doubt so all we, we have need, Andy Reid. So, so you're saying all we need is to have the equivalent of Mike Holmgren, Andy Reid, uh, John Gruden, and Steve Marich on the same staff, and you're going to be fine. Is that what you're telling exactly. me? Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Because otherwise, it's just not going to end well. It's just not going to happen. Like you, the whole sort of like oh, development of quarterback thing is cute and it's a cool story, but. It just isn't. It just doesn't work with the reality of the situation that you're not going to have that thing happen. You're not going to have a situation where a quarterback who is really talented, by the way, but really talented, oh, goes into yeah. a situation where he has the best. It's like the like they could have turned anybody into a decent quarterback or something. So like you just take a guy who, but and even after all that, though, even after having one of the best quarterbacks whispers you could think of coaching him, he still has those flaws from a decision-making standpoint that still pop up every now and again, which, you know, it was kind of his legacy. But I'm just saying, like, it's, you don't – you go with the odds. You know, the odds say if, if you test a certain way, statistically speaking, you should probably avoid that guy or at least treat him as what he is, a developmental quarterback, and not treat him as, uh, oh, no – Oh no, Jake Butt. Uh, but yeah, you know, and not treat him as you know a guy who you think is just gonna, or at least take him really high. Because again, I like Deshaun Kaiser. Should Deshaun Kaiser be a first round pick? No, 
he shouldn't be a first round pick because he just isn't there mentally speaking. And just because he's talented, I mean, he is talented. doesn't mean that all of a sudden, Oh, we're going to, you know, have this huge sort of investment in the guy. So, but I don't know. I mean, everybody's different. And of course, traits, Twitter. It's the one thing I don't like about traits. Twitter is it, it, it's a sense of like, all you need to do is find the traits when you're not even looking at all the traits. Production is a trait, you know. This other sort of things are tra- all these things are traits. But you're only focusing on one trait. Oh, oh, is a busted knee a trait? That actually is a trait. Uh, I just haven't actually, you know, went into the data stuff. It's, it's what I've been trying to egg Montel into the, is the injury stuff, but he's he's kind of lazy, but uh, not really lazy, but just you know, the drive is. Not where it needs to be in terms of injuries, though. But yeah, I mean, everything is a trait, but they want to focus in on one trait as the trait above all traits, you know, the one trait to rule them all. When based on everything I do, it isn't the one trait to rule them all. All the traits matter. So, I mean, that's really all I can say at this point. I just think a guy with Josh Josh Allen is, is, is talented, but are you really going to invest? a high pick into a quarterback who completed 56% of his passes in the Mountain West Conference, you know, are you going to invest in that guy really, really high? Like a guy with that resume, I don't think he would. I don't think a a reasonable team would do that. So as much Uh, as he is talented, it's just as crazy. There's no team that's going to take him high. None. There's no team that's going to take him high. He's going to look at that – and his tape backs up. He won't compete completely I mean, 55 or 56. Exactly. Well, as, 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 people like, <laughs> as people like to say, tape will tell someone who you are. Tape tells you he is exactly what we've described. He is a person exactly with some rare gifts and rare gifts. But day in and day out, game in and game out, you're going to see four or five Double face palm, head slap, oh my, OMFG decision making things. Some times when he just flat out misses open receivers, throws away from a guy where he has, you know, a nice, clean, little easy eight yards, free and clear to try to jam it in 27 yards downfield. Triple you know, in. Yeah, it's trouble coverage, exactly, yes. That. If that's what you're into, have at. Let me tell you who's not into that, your coach. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're right. But Most coaches want to win games. Yeah. That's what I said, you know? your coach. Your coach is And awesome. soon. They want to win them like soon. They, they don't want to redshirt this guy. They want to win these games as soon as possible. Your coach ain't got four years to wait. <laughs> Somebody to be good. As good as Jameis Winston and Marcus Mariota are, they both got their first coach fired. <laughs> so... Yep. <laughs> Which is what rookie starters often do. That's that's that's. It is a rare rookie starting quarterback who has immediate success. Guys like Robert Griffin III are the exception. Guys like Russell Wilson are the exception. Guys like Andrew Luck are the exception. They're the opposite of the rule. The fact that those guys all happened 
around the same time is a fluke of, it's like, hey, I'm going to go out and win the lottery a couple of years in a row, Powerball. I'm going to roll, I'm going to hit it this year, and then I'm going to hit it again next year, and then the year after that. But it's super rare. It, we may not see it yeah. ever again, but we still want to see it again soon, where guys just come yeah. out into the league completing 50-plus percent of their passes and two-to-one touchdown interception, or more than two-to-one touchdown interception ratio as rookie. This just doesn't happen. Derek Carr, uh, Derek Carr, Marcus Mariota, Jameis Winston are all rare talent, and all of Extremely them are second coach, and all of them are on their second head coach, and all of them are on their second head coach, correct? <laughs> and and I and I like every single one of them more than any one quarterback in this draft, though it's close-ish, I guess, with some. I mean, I would take Carl bringing the quarterback to this draft. I would take Mariota bringing the quarterback to this draft. And I think James, yeah. I would take Jameis over any quarterback in this draft. Uh, it's probably closer with Jameis than it is with the others. Just yeah, because. It's not really close for any of them for me because, I mean, I think those other yeah. three guys are much better quarterbacks than anybody in this draft. However, yeah. there are teams that are winning without, you know, super elite yeah. level quarterbacks. It is oh, yeah. impossible to win in the NFL if for a, with a guy that you just don't have to replace. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, look at Houston. Right. They had Brock Osweiler, and they still managed to. I mean, get into the Brock Osweiler is below replacement, and they're going to go to the playoffs. <laughs> yep. Right, Tom Sa- Tom Savage. You know, drafts better get excited. Um, I mean, Kirk Cousins. I know it's. I know it's sort of in hip now to sort of embrace Kirk Cousins, but if you watch Kirk Cousins on a regular basis like I do, he's not out there killing it. You know, he's basically a better version of Ryan Fitzpatrick. I mean, but not a way better version, just a better enough version of Ryan Fitzpatrick that you don't have to replace it. Consider what we've seen from Andy Dalton and Kirk Cousins. It might be that Jay Gruden has a very quarterback-friendly offense that actually works with quarterbacks that aren't great. (laughs) (laughs) Which which is interesting um, that you point that out. I still think that if he and Robert Griffin III didn't flat-out dislike each other, he would have eventually panned out in that offense. But I could tell that those two just didn't hit it off. It went went south south fast with those two. I, I, and of course, I, I the injury. The Gruden, the Gruden are notorious for coaching that position rough. And yes, if, yes, if, they if, are. If you, if you have feelings, <laughs> <laughs> you're probably this might not be for you. <laughs> I'm just going to yeah, say, you know, they just say that they have a reputation for coaching that position rough. <laughs> right. Well, it's funny, you mentioned Bruce Gradkowski, and of course, for those who remember, he had the earliest part of his career uh, was battling with Chris Sims uh, down in Tampa once uh, Sean King had gotten hurt and then subsequently retired. So, so many Tampa Bay was kind of without a quarterback. Brad Johnson hung him up, you know, after a 15 or whatever many years career, spent as a sort of spot starter, backup slash Super Bowl quarterback. 
and Sean King was supposed to be the guy, and then he got They played around with Jeff Garcia for a bit, though. Thank you. There he goes, Jeff Garcia. But see, Jeff Garcia was a veteran. Like, you know, his feelings were pretty... Well, yeah, he's like Gruden like, you know. He likes those old vets that already know everything. How many years... How many years did Rich Gannon sit on a bench in the NFL? Many, I mean, many years. <laughs> yeah, well, he, Joe Montana broke down finally in Kansas City, and he got a chance to show what he could do for part of, what's the, 98 season, which made him a, a, a kind of a hot free agent, uh, you know, commodity. But, yeah, he had started his career with the Patriots who wanted to move him to safety and he, or wide receiver, and he politely declined, and they eventually got rid of him. And he rode the bench in Minnesota for quite some time, was with Washington even for a year, maybe two. And Kansas City is where he got his break and that he actually got to play some, like I said, when when Montana got hurt. And he made his that, you know, made enough of a market for people to sign him, like I said, as a uh, – as a free agent, and he went to Oakland of all places, where I was thinking at the time, like, this is not a Al Davis quarterback. So Gruden must have had some amount of pull, you know, because this is not somebody that Al Davis could have possibly enjoyed. I mean, he didn't look or feel like an <laughs> Al Davis quarterback. But, but I mean, like, he, had, he was John Gruden's Oh yes. Well, he was he was essentially what John Gruden would have been if John Gruden had been taller and more talented. I mean, he yeah, yeah. He, he was very athletic player. Even, very athletic. He, even into his life he was early. very smart. He was very tough, both mentally and physically tough. He played in Tubby Raymond's wing tee, and he took a fair number of shots. As you might have said, you know, uh, he did, he was he wasn't he wasn't opposed to getting hit if he had to, and he ran four five five at his pro day. So very fine athlete. Like I said, such a good athlete that a couple of teams wanted to see if he would at least consider playing another position, and he, like I said, politely declined. So yes, it took about eight Maybe years or something, seven years yeah, for him to finally do Athletic enough, he was a punter. At Delaware before he was their quarterback. Yep. yep. Sort of a Danny White situation or Randall Cunningham kind of situation. He was a very fine punter. So he, yeah, he I, was, I, like I said, he, he, was, he was John Gruden's guy. I mean, yeah. he was tough yeah. and he was athletic. And, you could scream infinities at him. He would scream them right back at you but he wouldn't get all butthurt about it. Yes, it was everything he wanted. <laughs> I mean, that that was the thing with, like I said, with the group. You got you to be, you got to be willing to, you know, you know, hear your, hear things about your ancestors. And make you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like I said, there's a whole generation of, of people who don't know the real John Gruden. I'll just put it that way. I'll, I'll give it at that. <laughs> the John Gruden that, 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 that almost got Chris Sims to, to kill himself on a football field. Yeah, he, he, he I like the way you put it, coached the position rough. And, yeah, Jay is only slightly detuned, 
You know, he's he's close to that. He's not quite as withering with his remarks. I've been giving understand. He's not as witty, I guess, is really the real thing. He's not he has as many like snappy rejoinders about guys that, that Gruden did. But yeah, he'll go after you pretty hard. But he seems and, and Jay was a pretty good quarterback himself. <laughs> Jay was a very good quarterback. I watched Jay quite a bit, both in college and in, in arena, and he could have been an NFL backup for eight, nine, ten years. I mean, once again, he was as good or better than loads of guys that that, that rode the bench in the NFL as, as backup QBs for years. He was no worse than a guy like Kubiak or Jason Garrett or a bunch of other guys that you could name. And he was better than some guys. I mean, I mentioned the Billy Joes, Hobart, Tolliver. He was better than those guys. You know, he was a smallish, I mean, bigger than John, but smallish for, you know, an NFL quarterback. He was on the smaller side. He had a decent arm, but, you know, nothing to really write home about. But he was, yeah, smart, tough. I mean, he was a classic coach's kid, just like, you know, so many of them are. Like so many, but yeah, I, he was a terrific arena league quarterback. Uh, I think he was an MVP of the arena league t- once or twice, and I know he was an arena bowl MVP. Uh, was it Orlando that he won his? Arena I think he bowl won with? With, oh, I think he won with two different teams. So yeah, I think he might have done with two. But yes, mm-hmm. yeah, I remember him quite well as a player. He was good, and he obviously understands the position at a high level. But yeah, he's not. He's not always warm and friendly in the way he expresses himself, as you, you know. And that's the thing that people don't really get. When I talk about maturity and and having gone through certain things, I'm not just talking about the stuff that happens when you're actually on a football field playing football. You have to deal with grown-up stuff in the NFL. If you are a guy who's had a handful of starts and you're a you're you're a redshirt sophomore or whatever that declared early, I mean I'd like to point out that that's those stories don't end well most of the time. I mean Jamarcus, oh, Jamarcus, oh, I'm sorry, um, not Jamarcus, now, but uh, don't talk about Jamarcus. You'll give Jim a bit. You'll you'll hurt Jim. <laughs> sorry, 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 but I mean uh, he was a, a he was actually he was actually a true a, he was a he was a true junior, but. But the the redshirt sophomore story in general Tommy is not a happy. No. Right. Not enough of happening. Tommy I Maddie. mean, Mike, right, Mike Vick is sort of a success story amongst the redshirt sort sophomores. Of. Well, I mean, amongst the redshirt sophomores, yeah. Uh, we'll see what happens with – well, obviously, we'll see what happens with um, with Jameis. I mean, he's – you know, the, he'll be the current standard bearer for the redshirt sophomore mm. quarterback. But – but most of the stories have not been happy endings. Uh, I guess the one other one who's sort of an asterisk because he served, you know, three years in the Navy during World War II. But, I mean, Norm Van Brocklin sort of gets an asterisk because uh, he was 25 or something when he declared as a registered sophomore. But a little different deal there having been through World War II. So we don't have to worry about mental toughness with, with that. But – Amongst the quote unquote normal redshirt sophomores, it hasn't usually worked that well. You're suddenly put into a situation where, hey, it's guys' livelihoods we're talking about. And people always throw out this thing, well, he'll get NFL coaching. He'll get... Do you think that 
there's some magical process that makes all NFL coaches better than all college coaches. There are NFL coaches who are not as good as college coaches, believe it or not. <laughs> there are some college coaches Man. that are Man, distinctly don't. better. I mean, I think that's what people need to realize. This saying he'll get NFL coaching doesn't mean doesn't mean good. <laughs> NFL no. coaching doesn't actually mean Some NFL mean coaches great coaching. are just babysitters, you know. Sometimes, I mean, they're just sort of so, like the coach wants you to look at this. All right, have fun, you know. Like it's just like you know. <laughs> and besides that, they're just. I mean, again, every single player in the NFL. I mean, you're going to learn more from the veterans than you are from the actual coaches, and that's what the veterans want to actually help you out and teach you because right. they may not right. want to do that. I, hey, man, you know, they might go with the whole, you know, hey, watch me do what I do and learn from that. I, You know, that's it, though. I mean, I'm not going to hang out with you. <laughs> I'm just going to, you yeah, know. The Brett the the Favre approach. Yes, correct. The rest. You're here to so take my job, is, and I don't want you to take my job, you know? Right. I like my job. <laughs> well, guys, so that's the thing I, I have to go. So I know you do, sir. Well, uh, Steve, you, of course, have a standing invitation to return at any time. Always a pleasure, and have a wonderful, happy, healthy, blessed You guys have a great new year as well. Thanks, sir. But... As I was, well, as we were saying, here's the thing that people, like I said, I always hear that, 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 well, he should just go ahead and declare because he'll get NFL coaching with this sort of magical assumption that that's this panacea, this elixir that pours forth from the mouths of NFL coaches is automatically superior to anything you would ever get at college. And it's just not true. I don't know how else to say it. And in terms of basic skills development, that is not something that most NFL coaches even consider part of their job description, quite frankly. Dude, you're in the NFL. I can't work with you on what you're doing with your wrists there. You know, that's, I'll point out that it's wrong. Fix it. You know, but, but I mean, we've got other stuff. It's, it moves very quickly here. We got to play the so-and-sos in four days. I don't have time to fix that thing that you're doing. I'll tell you I don't like it. So I think that's the thing people maybe don't fully grasp is, I mean, people say, well, there's so much more time. There's more about classes. All that's just true. There, you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, you know, a biochemistry final. You don't have to worry about writing a term paper. There's no 20-hour rule, though with the current CBA, the amount of time spent in full-on padded practices is actually lower in the NFL than it is in college. You can hit all day in your 20-hour, if you want to. I mean, not a, most guys don't, but you conceivably could be padded up hitting people for 20, 12, 20 hours of the 20 hours if you want to do it that way at the collegiate level. The CBA only allows you... I used to know this. I think it's something along the lines of 15 
hours of full padded practices in a week. I think that might be right. So I think it might actually be five hours less per week of full padded, potentially five hours less of full padded practices, depending upon what the coaches do. Not, not Not every college coach wants to hit for 20 hours in their practice week either, but potentially they could. There's no rule stopping. While I believe the CBA limits you to, I can't remember what it is during OTAs and, and mini camps, but once you get into the season, some teams don't even bother hitting anymore, <laughs> you know, padding up and hitting anymore because, you know, you don't have as many dudes. You get, Some teams just abandon it because they don't want to get anybody hurt because uh, you don't have, you know, 85 dudes on scholarship for the NFL. But I, I think people misunderstand how much development time a young quarterback is going to get. Because if you're not the starter, you know, hey, well, you won't play the first year anyway. Okay, awesome. So you've drafted this guy, pick number 11 overall, and you're not going to play him. So he's your number two. He's going to get 20, 25, maybe 25% of the snaps. I mean, that's, that's generous. There are some teams where the number two doesn't get that. But let's, let's be generous. Let's say you're getting 20, 25% of the snaps. And they like some stuff you do. They don't like other stuff you do. But they don't have – there's not that much time to work on what your second-string quarterback is doing with his shoulder when he's throwing the ball down the field. There just isn't. Hey, you're doing that better than you were doing it before. Keep working on that. You know, I don't think you understand how little time an NFL position coach can devote to fixing a guy's mechanics. You're worried about installing this particular week's game plan and going over the film of what happened last week and preparing for, I mean, there's all these things you've got to do. Hey, we're changing this. We're changing these hots. We think somebody may have picked up on our hand signals. We're changing the, I mean, there's stuff like that. Mechanics are things they can, they are concerned about. Don't get me wrong, but they just don't have the time. Hey, I'm going to have you do this drill. And yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll give you a pointer here or to here or there. Hey, try doing this, you know, hey, point your toe a little more that way. I'm not saying they won't try to help, but I think people think they are going to spend hours fixing that hitch in your in your motion. And that's just not how it works. No, it's not. You know, so I I have to sort of look askance at this assumption that, well, he'll get NFL coaching. You should just get out into the NFL as quickly as possible because you'll get this NFL coaching. That'll be better. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when it's true you may find better coaching, but it's not always true. It is it is not always true. It is Mahomes is a great example, right? Mahomes should just go ahead and declare because even if he doesn't go to the first round, he just declare because He's in this system that's holding him back, and he just gets in the NFL. It'll be better. Somehow forgetting, though Cliff Kingsbury didn't have a long career in the NFL, Cliff Kingsbury was an NFL quarterback. Uh, Played for the Jets and somebody else. Uh, you know, not very long, but well, he, he knows what NFL coaches do. He's 
been coached by NFL coaches. He's been through the process of being a reserve rookie second and second year and whatever, how many years he was there, quarterback in the NFL, getting all of that supposedly amazing coaches and coaching himself. Now, if these coaches were as amazing as everybody assumes they are, and Cliff Kingsbury, you know, obviously is a pretty studious young man, he's learned a lot of the things that they were teaching to him. And I would think, at least theoretically, he would be able to impart some of these same things to Patrick Mahomes. Now, the thing I find frustrating about this sort of inessent push, you know, we just we just want to unceasingly push every possible underclassman into the NFL. There are certainly guys that belong in the NFL. There are certainly, under, I mean, hey, Solomon Thomas, I have, if he decides to declare, it will be a little bit surprising, but I have not a problem with it. Hey, more power to you. If you're a dominant, not good, not above average, but a dominant collegiate player, to the point where there's very little else that you could still do to improve while playing in college, I am more than willing to say, hey, that makes sense. I mean, I wasn't urging Deion Sanders to come back for his senior year at Florida State. He clearly had mastered college football. There was no more for him to still learn. But that's the exception. I mean, there's a few guys I can point to and say, yes, that guy was definitely ready. Hey, Aaron Rodgers, that guy was ready. Those guys were ready. But this particular quarterback class, this underclass and quarterback class, it's not like I'm looking at someone and thinking, wow, that guy has nothing more to learn. He is so ready. He should just leave immediately. So, yeah. We have to. And then we have the whole Brad Kaya thing, too, you know, which. Oh, yeah. Who knows if Brian he's Kyle. declaring or not, but there's that whole thing. <laughs> Just kind of sitting there in the back. <laughs> yeah, Kaiser, Kaya, Mahomes, Trubisky. I mean, there's a bunch of talented dudes, and every single one of them has a significant deficit, flaw, or issue yeah. that would, in my mind, yeah. In my mind, in my way of thinking, now obviously not everyone thinks the way I think, but each one of those guys has things that they there's enough need for them to work on and improve that wherever they're going to do it, and whether they try to do it in an NFL camp, whether they do it while they are in college, where they're going to school currently, there's enough there that says a lot would have to happen for this person to be ready to start and finish an NFL football game. And even some people who support some of these players agree and say, oh, yes, well, he's not ready, but. Like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> like, there's no need for but. If you say a person's not ready, that means they're not ready. Yeah. I mean, my biggest thing is, is I feel like a guy should declare if he has a certain level of skill developed because right. when you get when you get to the NFL level, you're going to be able to have to do certain things, and you can't do everything. There's going to be somebody else that's going to be able to do that, you know, other than you. <laughs> so you might as well improve on a bunch of things as much as possible. Like every single player can come back to school and improve. I don't really care 
I mean, even Solomon Thomas could come back and improve on a lot of different things. Yep. But just like you, I feel like he does a lot of things at such a high level that if, if he comes out, I don't think it'll be as big of a deal um, considering some of the stuff he hasn't mastered. But he has mastered, he, but he does do some things extremely well. So you go, okay, this guy can work. With the quarterback class, you have lots of guys who, at, with the mental aspect of the position, you know, hitting checkdowns, um, pocket presence, dealing with pressure, yep. stuff like that, where you kind of go, man, I I worry, you know. Uh, and even with a guy like Mahomes. The only thing I'll say about Mahomes is I think Mahomes is a little bit misunderstood because of the fact that he is actually a fairly deceptive. Even though he plays in a, in a very, you know, you know, screen pass type of thing, he they do add a lot of different layers to the offense to make it a little bit more deceptive, a little bit more, you know, the quarterback has to do a, a couple more things to kind of uh, – you know, fix things, but but for the most part, I mean, every single quarterback that's underclassman should go back to school, should improve. But I just don't, I just don't understand why, why you know, like okay, sure, there's the whole thing of like, well, they're going to get paid now and all that other stuff, and I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to be paid anymore if you don't win the job, like if you don't have the skills to win the quarterback job in the NFL, or if you don't have the skills to be a starter who wins football games, then you're only going to be making so much money. You know, like Geno Smith is not waiting on getting a, you know, a $15 million a year contract. Like that's not, that's just not in the cards for Geno Smith right now, you know? So like, sure, there's lots of quarterbacks who are going to make money, but if you don't, if you're not ready for the NFL, then the chances of you flaming out and just not being, you know, just basically losing everything um, is really, really high. And there's a lot of quarterbacks like Kaiser and other guys where I just worry about, you know, where they are mental toughness-wise too, where I just kind of wonder if, if the NFL is really the best scenario for them. It's funny you mention the name of Geno Smith. I wonder where he would land, you know, if you, not knowing what you know now, but if you're just looking at him as a prospect, where he'd stack up in this quarterback class. I mean, obviously huh. he's coming from a system that, for the people who are, you know, sort of anti, you know, who who sort of don't like, Quarterbacks from certain schemes, you could point that out, but he played from the pocket, even though he's a good athlete, he played from the pocket almost exclusively. Occasionally went under center, though not very much in his time at West Virginia. Was extremely accurate. Got better every year. I mean, if you can sort of block out what you know about how his NFL career has played out and just look at him as a prospect, 
I think he'd probably get the nod over Kaya if Kaya came out. Be close with Kaiser, I would think. I mean, I think where he would stack up. He would definitely get the. I mean, he definitely would get the thing over Kaya. Um, My big thing with Kaya is that he had a statistically. I mean, he regressed statistically speaking from right last year. Correct. Um, Correct. And on field to a certain extent, because you know there was a lot of things where I do. And the thing is, I know a lot of people. Oh, it's a new system, guys. It's 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 West Coast, you know. Like it's like sure, there's new things and there, there's different sort of layers and stuff to things, but things like vert out are not very hard, you know, sort of concepts. I guess like there's a lot of things that they do in that offense that are basic staples of the West Coast offense that he was struggling with a bit. You know, there are just lots of things where, yeah, it's a little, there's some things here and there um, that are more emphasized, but I just was very surprised that he struggled as much as he did um, with that, uh, to, to me, because I just felt like it was just, you know, like, I don't know. I, I just felt like he shouldn't have regressed is what I'm trying to say. Like, he shouldn't have had this big sort of, you know, downward spiral in play considering the type of offense that he's running is not really that complex of an offense for the most part, you know, compared to what he had the previous year. Agreed. And, I mean, once again, as I've said so many times, I'd love to see him stay in school uh, for his own development and long-term you know, happiness and, uh, you know, chances, best chances to become what he might be able to become. But hmm. I mean, this is yeah. in case. And Trubisky is, kills me. Yeah. Well, people always bring up scheme. Well, Mahomes is in this, blah, blah, blah. What do you think Fedora runs at UNC, people? What do you think Luke Falk is in at Washington State? Do people not understand that these are schemes that are not quite identical, but super similar? Pretty similar. You know, it's just there's there's a lot more emphasis, uh, at least with Leach's system, there's a lot more emphasis on creating that you know, he's like obsessed with creating that five, you know, yard bit of separation, you know, type of thing. Um, right. That's kind of his thing. Yes. That's kind of his thing. That's like his trademark, kind of, you know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta create that, you know, five yard open space right there, you know, because that, that'll, that'll give us advantage. But yeah, I mean, it's there are definitely some differences, but like it's again, it's 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 shotgun offense. You know, three wide receiver, four wide receiver sets or more. And the emphasis is on pushing the field, you know, tempo a lot of times, most of the time, um, with some running here and there. But the run, the running plays is, you know, we always usually say the running plays are, are the are the, uh, the trick plays. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's basically mm-hmm. what the running plays gotcha. are. Gotcha. 
Ha-ha, gotcha. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there's really not that big of a difference between these types of teams. And it's not like they don't run route combinations and different sort of route concepts that are foreign to NFL teams. It's just that they don't run as many. And it's not Baylor-esque either. There's, they're a little bit more complex than, than um, what Baylor does at its simplest. Because Baylor's obviously gone through some ebbs and flows where, you know, their offense has been simpler or more complex depending on the type of guy who runs it. But, um, but I mean, these are these are fairly complicated offenses. It's just that they're from shotgun. And I don't – and, sure, there are definitely some things where, you know, you have to take – you know, again, like anything else, if you're, if you're a guy who doesn't take the ball from center, it's going to take you some time to perfect that aspect of things. But are there quarterbacks who really failed because they couldn't perfect – like it, they weren't coordinated enough to take a snap from center? and run certain plays. I mean, I like, sure. These are things that, that are good and everything. Like these are, these are things they're going to have to do at the next level, but these are things like if they prove that they can run or do, or do certain concepts with repetition, um, then there's like, there's stuff there we can go. Okay. Even though he hasn't done this, he's shown that he can do this, which takes a certain level of repetition and practice. So he could, do this and through repetition and practice could get this down as well. It's it's like with route running, for example, where I might see a guy who's in an offense where they only run like four routes, but how they run their routes tells me a lot about, you know, are they putting in effort? Are they, even though they only run four routes, are they trying to do things to make those four routes look different each time? Um, you know, to kind of improve things, you know, to get more deceptive, even though they only run four routes, they make the four routes much more impactful than just a regular Joe Schmo guy that runs four routes, I guess. And that's kind of my thing with Falk and uh, Mahomes is even though they have these systems, which people like hate on, I, I think that they're a little bit more complex than, than what people let, you know, let them on to be, I guess, you know, yep. especially Falk system, which is like mind numbing at times. That's why, you know, <laughs> Why Leach is a lawyer, I guess. But yeah, um, kill you with information, you know. Yeah. Like I said, I think people fail to make certain connections and to make other connections that they probably shouldn't. So, of the junior quarterbacks or underclassmen quarterbacks, whatever. Most of them are in systems that have them in pistol or shotgun 75 or more percent of the time. That's all of them. You know, that's, that's across the board. There's not a single one of them that's mostly under center. There's not a single one that's not in a system where they have three or four wides in the field most of the time. All of them. Our systems, we've got three or four wide pretty much all the time. Several of them are in systems that can face their roots back to some version of how money is offense, whatever you want to call it, air raid, whatever. As you mentioned, Falk is in the most lawyerly and the most complex version of it, the most the one that puts the most load on the quarterback's brain is clearly Mike Leach's, and that's 
what he's into. And then a more quarterback-friendly version is run by Cliff Kingsbury, but still off that same tree, family tree. Holgerson and all of his quarterbacks, you know, are in a now a little more, a little more under center, a little more run centric. Yeah, you know, you know, than than some of the others. You know, when you and and the Oklahoma State version is close to Holgerson because Holgerson, of course, comes from the Gundy part of the the tree, and. Uh, Fedora is also from that same part of the tree. Fedora, formerly offensive coordinator at Oklahoma State, and he took Gunter Brewer, the wide receiver coach, with him when he uh, when he left to take the job at Carolina. Well, let me correct myself. Took him with him when he left to take the job at, at Southern Miss. That got him the job later at, at Carolina. But these people are all running. Offenses that are more alike than they are Pretty similar. Yeah, <laughs> they're it's just, darn similar. It's just they tend None to do. Yeah, I mean it, the the only real differences is just that it's with personnel. You know, um, West Virginia right. has some pretty good running backs, so they want to use more run plays with those types of guys. Um, Texas Tech has an athletic quarterback in Mahomes, so they tend to try to you know, emphasize him, you know, not a ton, but they do kind of run him a little bit more. Same thing with Skylar Howard, too, at West Virginia. Um, Mike Leach has decided to run the football a little bit more than he usually <laughs> does. <laughs> but yeah. there's still the same emphasis on, you know, wide receivers that, you know, create that sort of five-yard area and then make stuff happen in that area. There's still that sort of emphasis there with multiple, like five wide receivers that get, you know, the same amount of yardage each game. <laughs> you know, like, of course, they'll have some guys who have bigger games than others, but not as much. Like, it pretty much those five to six, seven, eight guys will all get a piece of the pie at some point um, in the game because um, those are the guys that they do. And with Oklahoma State, it's similar to highlighting, you know, the stuff that they have, which is really good, which is their wide receiver and James Washington. So they do their best to highlight him, you know, get him, get him the ball fast in space and let him do his thing, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it really just depends on the personnel that really creates those uh, differences and flavors, I guess. You know? And and also with the philosophy of what they want to do as well. Which again, like I said, you know, there's Texas Tech does, but they're not as Leachian in terms of you know like emphasizing certain things. But there, there's stuff still there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean that that's really the only big difference is just personnel, you know. Like if you had James Washington um, at Washington State, they might mm-hmm. give him the ball a lot more you know, than they would other guys on the team, you know, I'm just saying, like, you know, um, same thing goes with, like, if James Washington was at Texas Tech, you know, they probably would be getting him the ball a lot more than guys like Gile and, you know, the other people that are wide receivers there. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of things to criticize about 
you know, Mahomes or whoever it is you want to pick on. But to me, the thing to bring up that it's a scheme that doesn't translate or whatever seems to be the weakest part of an argument because, one, it's not entirely true. There have been quarterbacks who come from either that exact same or at least a similar scheme and have had success. And then the second part of it, I mean, once again, the funny thing is I get sometimes this stuff from quote-unquote traits Twitter who I would think if anybody would embrace a guy like Mahomes, it would be Trace Twitter. Like, hey, look how loaded with Trace this guy is. Well, he does a lot of things Josh Allen does, but he's better because he completes. I mean, if you're basically saying, oh, I love Josh Allen because he runs around and then throws the ball deep and completes these passes down the field, Mahomes has been doing that all year. And sometimes not even having the ability to leave the pocket. So there's been a lot of, I don't know, with Mahomes there's been a lot of misinformation with him, to, to me at least, because there's all these people that kind of want to paint him as like this reckless, you know, disregard for uh, the rules of the offense. He doesn't play within the system, Bill. He doesn't play within oh. the system. And he does. It's just that sometimes he kind of wings it, but, you know, in kind of a Brett Farvian way, but at the same time, he's not taking these huge uh, chances with the football either. So, um, at least as much, because he's playing at Texas Tech and they don't have a defense. Like, they literally, I mean, Texas Tech defense is probably right up there with Arizona and a couple other places in terms of uh, the ability to, to just do whatever you want and not have to worry uh, about stuff. But, um but yeah, I mean, I it is surprising that Josh Allen gets all the pub and, and love when Mahomes has been pretty much doing the same thing. It's just that he's actually completing more passes and you know playing tougher competition and you know there's lots of stuff like that. Uh, but I think Mahomes is going to come back to school anyways because I just feel like he does play at Texas Tech. There isn't that much, you know, Matt Miller isn't talking about Mahomes. I'm not saying that that influences things. I just know that some guys have that mentality where they go, oh, this draft guy is talking about me, so teams must be talking about me because that happens a lot more than you think um, at times. But, um, but yeah, I just think it's kind of surprising with Mahomes that there isn't a huge trait sort of thing because he has. I mean, it, just in terms of, you know, arm strength and everything else and athleticism, he basically has everything you want in a raw, uh, but very, very, very talented quarterback, you know, like in terms of just physical ability, he's, he's right up there with everybody, really. Well, yes. I mean, the, the easy comparison sort of side by side is look at he and Sean Kaiser. Because I wonder who or what could be done in a situation like that. Well, yeah, Kaiser, to me, is very – he's very Jameis Winston-like athlete-wise, which is that he isn't a great athlete. I mean, he's better. He's a little bit better than Winston. But I think it's a little overemphasized, I guess, is what I'm trying to say, in terms of his athleticism. Like, he's – he definitely, you know, can get a couple yards out of the pocket and do stuff like that, but it, it doesn't look pretty. 
you know. Um, so, I mean, but and he does have that sort of arm and all that other kind of stuff, but I don't know. I just think Mahomes, which, I mean, he gets compared to everybody, of course, but, you know, like I even said, he's like, you know, Brett Favre and Don McNabb and, you know, a bunch of other people just had a – he's like a classic West Coast athletic quarterback type, you know. Um, while Kaiser is more really just this sort of drop-back kind of passer guy, you know, for the most part, versus being kind of athletic. So, this is around that. Amongst the traditions, the things that happen this time of year, you know, people walk them into the year, lots and lots of bowl games, uh, food, drink, etc. But the other thing that begins trickling out, if it hasn't already done so, is well, the declare declarations are taking place, and then also some some guys, not all, will go to the extent of even sort of you know a letter or whatever it is that they felt they wanted to leave behind. So it'll be interesting to see which quarterbacks do come back, and I think a couple will declare, but I won't be shocked if uh, a couple of the ones that people are sort of assuming will declare won't. I mean, obviously we thought it was Rudolph. I think another thing that will happen. I think some of the seniors, whether it be the Senior Bowl or somewhere else, start to eventually remind people that they exist and that some of them can really play. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, sure, I haven't lost you. So, who are some of your your bowl season superlatives? Uh, who, what guys have caught your eye, impressed you, things like that, so far in the bowl season? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, well, Mason Rudolph and James Washington certainly um, impressed me. You know, with their performance, I felt like they, you know, work really well together, and um, I'm at least happy that they're coming back for another year uh, because uh, it's what both of them should do, really. Um, I felt like Washington, even though he is really talented, there are some things he can improve upon in terms of, you know, attacking zone coverage at times and making the proper decisions. But I was pretty impressed with what he was able to do. Uh, When it comes to the Stanford game, and uh, North Carolina, I think that was a big showcase for Solomon Thomas again. I mean, but I, he, but again, he's had so many big games this year. I don't even, I don't have to like point you to a game. I just just put on the tape with Solomon Thomas, and you'll have a good game. So that's just kind of been my approach to him. But he's he definitely played very very well this year, and I'm kind of excited to see what he does. Georgia TCU was interesting. Yeah, interesting. Uh, you know, Isaiah McKenzie had a decent game, and he surprisingly declared uh, for the draft. I was wondering what your thoughts were with McKenzie. He said he declared for personal reasons. Um, I don't really know what that is, but uh, how do you feel about McKenzie sort of joining the sort of endless amount of slot receivers that are in this class?
Well, as long as you got to the right answer. So, amongst the things that I guess I'll take with me or remember or however you want to think about it, obviously we talked about James Conner. I mean, that's the story. And, you know, the play, the tape has been solid as well, but obviously the story involved there. Uh, Sam Fultz and uh, I can't remember the other young man's name. But he was at a local, you know, uh, place where people gather, I guess we can call it, public house. And, you know, you this is also around the time you start to hear certain little things about some players, some of which do turn out to be completely true and some of which turn out to be just, I don't know, somebody got bored, who knows. But, you know, certainly some guys that I would highly recommend watching. So we get here to the last day of 2016. Already you've had some departures and some arrivals. Just taking a look at, yeah, I mean, that's a good good size circle, that group. You know, your Mojave Witwam or whatever you want to call it, your whoever it is, you know, the... There's a handful of uh, people who truly believe that, you know, this is a great, 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 great draft. You've got, you know, this player and that player, and, you know, if the so-and-so is declared, that's why you throw that in. But so I do believe it's a, it's a solid class. And I, like I said, I talked about how the senior quarterbacks can't seem to get any any space or whatever with all the juniors, some of whom have also not declared, but all the assumption that you're going to get all these, you know, I don't know. So we've talked a little about the wide receivers in the past. We've talked about the tight end class. Oh, and your guy, Gerald Everett, checked him out a little bit today, more today. Uh, interior line, exterior line, offense, defense, pretty much covered. Uh, let's see, who am I leaving out then? Uh, oh, okay. So, uh, unfortunately, we noted earlier, Mr. Peppers can't go. But there are players available, despite a lot of the excitement that did surround Julius. Uh, Julius. That's what did... Uh, uh, Jameer, Jameer, Jabril, there we go, Peppers. Uh, I've been looking at guys like Jonathan Ford, uh, Mike Tyson. Uh, oh, there's someone I'm forgetting. Oh, uh, Darian uh, Milanese, Howard Sprouts, Gilines. Gilines, <laughs> I guess, yeah. Gilines, yeah. I guess, but. Yeah, I mean, there's a few guys out there that give you all the, without the, you know, the punt returning, kick returning stuff, but all the other stuff, all the, you know, without all the wildcat quarterbacks. They give you everything that Jerome Peppers gives you. It's just they don't give you those sexy playing on the offensive side of the ball type stuff. Right. 
And we're at a point in, you know, the history where the need for some kind of player, whatever, whether you want to call them, you know, like it's also the Dion backer, whether you want to call them a box safety, whether you want to call them a, a nickel linebacker or uh, even a will linebacker, whatever, whatever you decide to call them, these 200 and, you know, five, 210, 215 or so pound players who uh, run well enough, at least in some cases, run well enough to sort of compensate for the loss of a, uh, you know, more conventional 230-some-odd-pound linebacker, that person who's replacing them must be able to do the things, you know, the linebacker things that I was getting before, but also bring the extra added value. I think it's sometimes a little dangerous to assume that a player will do, you know, all of the various things that they did in college at the next level. But like I said, uh, it'll, I'll be interested to see how that turns out. Now, we haven't talked that much about your Bill Pembers, which I guess people will find surprising, but I guess you've done grading and work and things like that. So let's start with that. Where and how did uh, Jabril Pepper stack up for you, Jim? Well, he actually was fairly productive as a player. Um, You know, he had fairly high solo tackle market share. He also had fairly high pass deflection market share um, from, uh, you know, the previous year. But the interception market share was very, very low. Um, and in many ways, he kind of was Eric Reed-wise production. I mean, that was kind of the closest guy to him in terms of how he produced on the field. But but that's really the only place where he falls off is in is in those particular areas. Um, and the only, like, special, special safety that's below him is, um, is Ed Reed, but he only is as low as he is because of the fact that when he entered the draft, he was a fairly old prospect. Um, probably one of the oldest safeties actually to enter the draft uh, when he entered. But um, but production-wise, was fine, you know, everything else like that. That's kind of how Peppers is. I mean, he he's a uh, you know he's a young player, obviously. He has lots of tackles, has flushes sort of stuff. But there isn't a lot of turnovers. There isn't a lot of the stuff that that really makes safety special safeties. You know, like the reason why safeties usually go to the Pro Bowl and stuff is because they get a lot of interceptions and picks. Uh, so there just isn't that sort of uh, foundation to fall back on, I guess, when it comes to his ball hawkness. And some of that shows up on tape. I mean, he doesn't really cover guys very well. Uh, in man coverage, and he he also kind of struggles a bit in his own coverage too. I mean, it's just areas where he kind of fails. So it's not that surprising that there's been sort of a shrinkingness to him in terms of people wanting you know to like him and stuff like that. Although again, I I feel like he should even be considered a safety because he's more of a linebacker and he plays a position like a linebacker. But that's just, I don't know, that's just me. But he's just kind of odd because as a safety, he didn't test terribly production-wise. It's just that he didn't necessarily test like an elite player in terms of as a safety. So that's, he's somebody that I would not exactly 
say, hey, go out and get him in the top 20 and stuff like that, especially in this class because I think there's a lot of other players that are really, really talented at many different positions that I think would be kind of better value. But I do think Peppers, at the very least, should be considered a safety or a linebacker or whatever. I just, I actually just hope that he goes back to school another year, which I doubt that happens, but it's just something I kind of hope happens because then we would actually have a better idea about what exactly he is versus what we have now.
Who do you think prevails? Jim?
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.